Support for The Culture Show comes from Bernadine Sung-Megason with Compass Real Estate, serving buyers and sellers throughout Greater Boston. Learn more at homesbybernadine.com. I'm Jared Bowen. This is The Culture Show. It's our arts and culture week in review. First up, the Beatles get by with a little help from AI. 45 years in the making, they're reunited on their final track, Now and Then. Should they just let it be, or should artificial intelligence enable the band to come together one last time? And a generation grew up with Matthew Perry and his character Chandler Bing. Thanks to streaming, a new generation has come to know him and the hit series Friends. What does it mean to mourn a TV character and the man who wanted to be known for so much more? Then it's on to a higher note, literally, by way of Flavor Flav's rendition of the national anthem. From there, we remember Robert Brewstein, a giant in American theater who founded the ART. Finally, Halloween. Is it a collective display of creativity or a candy-coated expression of commerce? That's next on The Culture Show. Welcome to The Culture Show. I'm Jared Bowen. I'm Callie Crossley. And I'm Edgar B. Herwick III. It's time for our Arts and Culture Week in Review. Here's what it sounded like. From the Beatles' final song to that great display of design, public art, and theatricality, we call Halloween. Making good music in a band is all about chemistry. When we lost John, we knew that it was really over. But in 1994, amazingly, an interesting opportunity arose. We could make more music together. I'm not great at the advice. Can I interest you in a sarcastic comment? <laughs> the Star Spangled Banner performed tonight by six-time Grammy Award-nominated rapper and artist Flava Flav. Salem is an October Fright Fest. There are paths full of ghouls, causeways covered in clowns. But they aren't the city's greatest terror. The scariest part of Salem, it's the parking. It really is. We're not saying it as a joke. It's true. <laughs> For weeks, the city and the MBTA have been pushing travelers to take public transit. Traffic this weekend was two to three hours just to get here. Oh, that's so New England. Let's start. Go, we'll go back, though. The Fab Four are reunited with the help of Artificial Intelligence, releasing their final track called Now and Then. From there, it's the loss of a friend, Matthew Perry. And do believe the hype. Flava Flav's rendition of the national anthem goes viral. We'll also remember Robert Brewstein. He was a force in American theater who founded both Yale Repertory Theater and, here, the American Repertory Theater. Finally, we'll recap Halloween, the intersection of culture and commerce. But first up, let's talk about the Beatles, now and then, their final track that came to be thanks to AI technology. So we'll hear a little bit of the song in just a moment, Kelly and Edgar. But Edgar, can you first take us through how this can happen now? Yeah, so this is technology that uh, was developed largely by Peter Jackson and his team uh, when they released Get Back, which was that massive documentary where they went back through all of these tapes uh, from the Get Back sessions by the Beatles and released them as this huge documentary. So they had basically worked out technology in the making of that film that allowed them to take any sort of single track, let's say like a piece of audio where you maybe have some music playing in the background and a couple of voices talking, uh, and split those all into their component parts, which is, you know, just a, a game changer. And so in this case, the Beatles were able to take a tape 
which was a demo tape by a song uh, of John Lennon's that they had tried to work on in 1994 when they uh, did the anthology project. Uh, but his, you know, voice and a buzz and the TV on in the background and the piano were all muddy together. But they were able to isolate John's vocals at a very high quality thanks to machine learning. Well, now that we understand how we got here, here's, <laughs> let's hear a little bit of this new song, new, it's amazing, Now and Then. take on this is I was very skeptical earlier this week when when this flood started to come at us and yeah. we, we understood that there would be this new quote unquote final song I still think final ish until it's the, the it's final, the final song, song until, until the next not, one yeah <laughs> uh, but when I listened to this first of all I thought it was really beautiful is it going to be one of those hits that stays with you for the rest of your life probably for me probably not but I thought this was a beautiful song and then to watch the the 12 minute documentary that accompanies this and to realize that these men are back together again mm-hmm. And you could almost feel it. You could see it. It was palpable in this documentary format, looking at Paul McCartney, listening to John Lennon with a, this decade-long span in between yeah. to know they could do this again. I thought it was incredibly moving. What did you think, Callie? It was very moving. And, you know, I didn't expect to hear anything from them again as a whole group. So that there was that to appreciate. One of the things I wanted to uh, bring up is that Paul McCartney has said there's nothing artificial about this, yeah. that it's our real voices, it's us, and we then used a technology to be able to put this together. Now, that's opposed to the AI-produced songs like the ones imitating Drake and The Weeknd. That's totally... Or hearing Johnny Cash sing the Barbie song. Exactly. Absolutely. So you wanted to be clear that that's not what was happening. So I thought the moment where you know he could hear John Lennon's voice so clearly was... A moment. <laughs> well, especially because they they have produced this moment very well. And to have this image, I don't think it's the exact image of him sitting at the piano writing this song, but to have sure. that image of yeah. him in his apartment right. with you know, probably Yoko nearby, because she is the one, we should point out, who turned these demo tapes over that allowed this to ultimately come to fruition. But to know that he sat there, and when you listen to those lyrics, I know it's true, it's all because of you, and if I make it through, it just... It yeah, goes right to your heart. Yeah, and it? the other mm-hmm. thing that's kind Very of amazing man. about it is to sort of think about the fact that this is, you know, this really is spanning across the entirety of their career, which is to say that, you know, John's demo is recorded in the late 70s. Mm. He's, so he's in his late 30s. Um, they used footage from 1994 when George was still alive and they took a crack at making this song as part of the anthology series. So they have some of the guitar from uh, from George from that, from 1995. Mm-hmm. And then they actually pulled uh, Beatle background vocals uh, from some of their catalogs. So I know that the, the background vocals of like Paul and George and John singing in the song Because from the Abbey Road album are back in the mix at one point. You hear them. so th- And then you have Paul and Ringo now in their 80s recording new stuff as part of it. So you have these men who knew each other at these various stages in their lives all across the decades together on one track, which is pretty cool. I think the timeline and the fact, I mean, my, I'm always startled when I read that they're in their 80s. Because the rest of their music, to your earlier point, um, Jared, is so timeless. 
Um, and there are generations of people singing it now that may not even know that it came from these young people who are in their 30s and they're now in their 80s. So this will be interesting um, cross-generationally as well to see how it does. Mm-hmm. We, Edgar, you were talking a little bit about the process. Let's, and we've referenced the documentary. Let's hear a little bit more from that um, to, to hear their takes on it. And this, again, is from the making of Now and Then. Making good music in a band is all about chemistry. The way our four very different personalities combined in the Beatles was something very special. When we lost John, we knew that it was really over. But with the technology that Peter Jackson and his team had worked out during the Get Back movie, he'd been able to separate off certain instruments and voices. We thought, well, we better send John's voice to them off the original cassette. My dad would have loved that because he was never shy to experiment with recording technology. I think it's really beautiful. They said, this is the sound of John's voice. A few seconds later, or however long it took, and there it was, John's voice, crystal clear. I know it's true. It's all because of you. And if I make it through, it's all because of you. Ooh, you just get goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. that's nice really beautiful. Slap back. Yeah. Echo on it. Mm-hmm. And so to hear this now and think, Tom Friedman has called this the Promethean moment when mm-hmm. we have artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm largely governing our lives and culture, arts mm-hmm. and culture, sure. and our lives going yeah. forward. Now that we know that this has happened, where do we think that this goes next? Because there is an infinite amount of material that can be tapped and artists resurrected to some degree. Yeah, what I worry about is that that'll end up on the next Pils- Pillsbury Dough commercial. <laughs> because, you know, we never know when to stop. We yeah. just don't. So, you know... I, the I chances mean, of you ending up producing products like this in a beautiful way, in a respectful way, as Paul said himself, not in an artificial way, but in a way that we use the technology to support us. I don't know. Look, I, I'll turn to another <laughs> another musician artist. I think it was Ani DeFranco who said in a song, every tool is a weapon if you hold it right. Mm, and so, true. you know, the fact of the matter is, is this is technology and technology is in and of itself not good or bad. It just is. And it is up to us. Everything's a mirror. It's up to us as people to either show restraint and use it for good purposes, as I think this is an example of, right? Uh, Or to use it to pull the wool over someone's eyes or for personal gain or whatever it is. So we'll see. Humans are going to be humans. Well, we know we've had those sort of bastardized songs by people whose voices and music were taken away from them. Hopefully this corrects course for us. I, I feel like I will be humming this tune all through the weekend. I just, again, thought it was so lovely. Well, coming up, we survey the greater Boston art scene from the legacy of Robert Brewstein to local color by way of a new mural at Roxbury Community College. That's next on The Culture Show.
The Culture Show. I'm Jared Bowen here with co-hosts Edgar B. Herwick III and Callie Crossley. If you're just tuning in, it's the Arts and Culture Week in a re Review. In a moment, we'll have our lens on local arts, but right now, Matthew Perry on Friends as Chandler Bing. He was sarcastic and wry, but he also had emotional warmth. Off-camera, he was equally complicated, battling addiction and the burden of being forever boxed in as everyone's friend. We had a debate this week as we were thinking about this show and the content about whether to talk about this because he died last Saturday. And Callie, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. so much, perhaps everything yeah. has been said mm -hmm. already. But this conversation is continuing because I think that we've recognized the reason it has continued for the better part of a week now is because he has this deep cultural resonance and perhaps even more than that with people because of this television show Friends and his character Chandler Bing. Why do you think that is? What have you recognized about the connection that Friends and, and Matthew Perry in particular have had with people? Well, I actually think um, that it could have been any one of them who died. Mm. And the show, because of its resonance uh, culturally, the same impact would happen. And particularly the first person, as, as someone said, this is the first in our family. They were considered a family uh, on the show, and um, and that's how... The, the show has been taken, again, across generations because it's, you know, still playing everywhere all across. And it was it was the, it was the timing of it when it just began. I would be remiss uh, if I didn't mention that uh, the blueprint for this show was actually a show about six black friends called mm -hmm. Living Single. And Warren Littlefield of NBC said, I want a show like that. Um, but, you know, then make it a white cast and that's and you ended up with friends. And so both shows had a had, a, had a, the timing of it had a resonance for people, young people trying to make it on their own, trying to figure out their lives and emotions, all of that to get and living together. The living single kids lived in Brooklyn in a brownstone and the and the friends kids lived in in uh, Manhattan. Uh, so those kinds of um Seminal experiences, I think, happening for a lot of folks were were so meaningful. And it still holds up decades later for kids in a different generation because the situations are very universal. And so people can relate to it. So I think that Matthew Perry, yes, I mean, great actor. I think of the ones, he's one of my favorites. I particularly liked him in films. And Friends was not a show I watched. Uh, so... But but the cultural resonance of it, the impact of it, its content and both its meaning to lots of folks uh, uh, will just stand for a great amount of time. Yeah, and I mm -hmm. think you also have to put it in the context sort of of the time in the media landscape. So if you, yes, if you go way right. back in the day, you know, I Love Lucy or whatever, you know, so many people would watch that show, but there were only three channels, right? right? When, when Friends was on, the, you know, on any given Thursday night— 50 million people would be tuning in to watch it, right? Which is astounding. And that's at a time when cable had already sort of developed. We didn't have the internet yet, but to be able to break through and have 50 million viewers on any given episode, for example, meant that it was culturally resonant to a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny. We were just talking about mm -hmm. the Beatles, and I think it was one of the producers of Friends who said this is like, this is like one of the Beatles. This is like losing a Beatle because yeah. they, were, they were sort of for mm -hmm. a period of time that big, that well-known, that talked about among people. 
Well, and and, and even if you didn't watch it, you knew about it. You knew. It. And right. I, I think mm-hmm. this is why it's not pat to say that we've lost mm-hmm. a friend, because for, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, I think this is a tremendous loss, because we, we know from television and radio that you, you come into people's homes, and yeah. so we identify with the people who are in our homes week after week mm-hmm. after week. Mm-hmm. Maybe you don't want Brian Cox from Succession hanging out <laughs> with you all the time. No, you do not. But you, you have this connection. <laughs> and and uh, Callie, you were mentioning Friends is playing all the time. I think it's 140 airings throughout all its distribution. It's, throughout the day around the world and so for a lot of people this is a significant loss especially for the connectivity you follow their 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 storylines because it's not like a book or it's not like a movie where there's this finite arc but we saw them evolve Mm -hmm. we evolved with them especially if you came up with the original friends and you had i mean we we just heard paul saying uh being in a band is about chemistry Chemistry. right and and i think even even in seeing how this Mm -hmm. cast has responded to this happening you you, that was huge i think Mm -hmm. you get this sense that part of the reason why this show worked and made people feel like they were a part of it is because it seems like these people really did love each other and they, and they always yeah. did too going back to their contract yeah. negotiations remember that's that correct. they were yeah. holding out together together as a collective to, unit. Yeah, yeah that's right so uh-huh. i i think that reads even across tv There's, i want to point out that he one of the things that he said just last year and when his memoir came out was that he hoped that he wouldn't be remembered just for friends that, I, and this is the part that we haven't talked mm-hmm. about um kelly as you say matthew perry detailed how he would want to be remembered during an interview that took place a year just a year before his death while speaking on the q with tom power podcast in 2022 to promote his memoir friends lovers and the big terrible thing and here he was asked about the legacy he would want to leave behind after his death the best thing about me bar none is if somebody comes up to me and says i can't stop drinking can you help me I can say yes and follow up and do it. That's the best thing. And I've said this for a long time. When I die, I don't want friends to be the first thing that's mentioned. I want that to be the first thing that's mentioned. And I'm going to live the rest of my life proving that. So this adds an entirely new dimension because Mm. we were also aware of coverage over the years of his struggles with addiction and the medical, severe medical problems he had. You can hear that in his voice there. Yes. Uh, And so that that brings this whole new dimension of empathy, I think, as people process this. Also, we don't quite know yet. The toxicology reports haven't come back of whether or not this was a moment in which he slipped. I also want to note that today they announced the Matthew Perry Foundation, which is going to go support the the exact people um, that he wanted to support till the end of his life. And so they set that up and his name will be on that as a part of his legacy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it's, you know, addiction is a beast. It, I mean, it is it, it's a monster. And, you know, it, it impacts all of us. You know, you know, everybody, every one of us has somebody in their life who is battling addiction or will be battling addiction or is, you know, fighting to stay sober. So that's a universal thing as well. And I think, you know, the the, the stars of the stage and screen, whether it be the big screen or small screen, you know, we it's they're heroes to a lot of people. You know, they're they're They look good and they're in makeup and they're put in great situations. And when you are forced to see a person's humanity, 
like you are in situations like this where you where you, you learn about a person, you know, dealing with something like this. Uh, it can be really point. You know, it can shake you. It can be you really know, poignant when their when their monuments brought yeah. brought, brought down because you, you you think that it's well. How could if they have so much money and they have the all resources at their totally. disposal and they have so much fandom and they can travel anywhere in the world? How could this possibly happen to them? And and so I think it's it's very beneficial to understand that in that respect. I think it's also important to know that they are not their characters. Exactly. Yeah, of course, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah so. <laughs> Great point, Kevin. Yeah, you know. You know. <laughs> All right, we're going to switch gears here and talk about Flavor Flav yeah. and his rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, which he performed at the Milwaukee Bucks game on Sunday. Here it is. All the land of the free. Yes. <laughs> and the for the modulation at the end. You can't see it in the studio, but Callie is miming this. You have Reach it for the pack. stars, Flava Flav. <laughs> oh my God. I thought this was so earnest. It, this is a, I think this is one of those moments, if you hear it, you think one thing. If you see it, he's so earnest. He is. It makes me just want to hug him. Well, then afterwards, then you learn the story that this was on his bucket list, that he yeah. begged the guy who's the president of the Milwaukee Bucks to do it. <laughs> um, and, the, and they made him audition, by the way. He had to send in a video. Uh, they made him audition? Yes, he, said, he, no. he reached out to the president of <laughs> the Milwaukee Bucks. He, he and still said, got it after he auditioned? <laughs> yes, because I think he saw he, he was earnest and really wanted to do it. So he said, send an audition. So he sent in a tape. He did. And he said he was very nervous, but it was very important to him. I mean, it's just hard to process because this is Flavor Flav. I mean, yeah, I mean well, you know. what do you mean by that? Just, just well, give I'm us just some saying, of the you know, with the clock and, you know, he's a part of... Uh, of all the great sounds, uh, songs like Fight the Power, Don't yeah, Believe Public the Enemy. Public Enemy, Don't Believe the Hype. It's a whole different vibe. Yeah. And so to, to think that he would be interested in sing alone, by the way, because he's been in an ensemble all his career, as far as I know. So alone to sing this song. I mean, it's you just don't know all the shades of people. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, apparently he. I mean, look, singing acapella might not be his might not be his thing, but apparently he's quite a musician. Chuck D, who is his partner in yes. Public Enemy, has said that Flav, Flav is proficient in something like 15 instruments. Oh, so he he is quite the. He was like a prodigy piano player when he was younger. So, um, but I I mean, this is to me, this is like. This is why I like karaoke. It's just the oh sincerity. No, oh no, 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 no. When I go to karaoke, right? I like. I mean, you could you could go to any number of sporting events and hear a perfectly beautiful yes. rendition of the national anthem by somebody who's a very good singer. And like when I go to karaoke and somebody's a very good singer and they're singing a faithful rendition of the song, I'm like, really nice. You're a great singer. But why I go? What oh I want God. is somebody who's maybe punching a little above their weight right now to do this. And they are sincere and they are belting it out. And that's what you have with this with Flava Flav. And to me, it's just really delightful the fact that he is Flava Flav. And then also, the if you watch the footage, the pan to the like Boy Scouts who are holding like the flags and stuff. And then the players kind of trying well, to keep it together. They were, they were no, encouraging. This is, yeah. this is a great moment. This is a great, this is a great moment. For well, me. and how you feel about karaoke is how I feel about the Star Spangled Banner and different renditions. And I didn't realize, I did a little deep dive this morning, that it was Marvin 
Marvin Gaye who changed yes. this whole notion of what it meant to sing the Star Spangled Banner because when he did it in 1983 for the NBA, he was the first person to do his own arrangement and mm. he just knocked everybody's socks off. And then, of course, we heard Whitney Houston do it. We heard that's it. Roseanne Barr do yeah. it. No, so Carl Lewis. Do you remember when Carl Lewis did it? That was it. Oh. oh. And he cracked. Yeah, he yeah, cracked. That and was a bit of a dead. That was a bit of a disaster. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a hugely challenging song, but how American is it and how artistic is it to be able to do your own version that suits your personality and your entertainment style? So I was tuning in thinking I was going to get the, the public enemy rendition of yes. Star Spangled Banner, but I did not. I no, you did not. The traditional one. No. It and is a it, difficult song. You, no, I, it is. I think Michael Dean, who's a UCLA professor in a piece some years ago, somebody did a piece about like how difficult this song is. And I think <laughs> I think his quote was, this piece will eat you. Yes. <laughs> like, if, like if you don't prepare, if you don't yes. really think it through ahead Unless of time. Unless you're Whitney Houston. Well, that I mean, to that, me is the best. That's oh the my tops. God. Unbelievable. You just listen you to know? that over and over again. And also, mm-hmm. did, Kelly, did you mention that he did this for his family too? Because he yes. had yeah, the family in, in World War II and it. It's just, it's, I it's, hope that people are just going to continue to send him Well, he says he wants to do it love. again. I yeah. don't know for the Bucks, but different places. He he was encouraged by the, the support of the audience. I mean, I give him a lot of credit because everybody's looking at you, and there you are, all alone. Also, he, <laughs> you know, we were just talking about this with Matthew Perry, but Flava Flav, also somebody who has battled addiction That's true. for many, many years. Yes. And I think, I think it was earlier this year he noted he's now three years clean from cigarettes, He's now three years clean from alcohol, and he's almost 20 years clean from drugs. So here's somebody who also had a very difficult uh, battle with drugs and alcohol. And, uh, you know, it's it's a success story right there, right and, now. And for I'll him, remind and people great. he's 64. He is yeah. no longer yes. the young pup, yeah. you know, hanging on the stage with... Uh, <laughs> with all the folks from... Um, 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 Public Enemy. Public Enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, all right. Coming up, we bring mm-hmm. it home. The MFA returns art, a major mural installation in Roxbury, and the legacy of Robert Brustein. That's next on The Culture Show. Welcome back to The Culture Show. If you're just tuning in, it's our Arts and Culture Week in Review. Robert Brustein, the actor, theater critic, and director who founded both Yale Repertory Theater and the American Repertory Theater, died this week at age 96. This is a seismic loss because this is a man who had just an outsized influence on... I was going to say regional theater in this country, but not. He had an outsized influence on theater and and, and personalities. So the quick background is, I mean, here is a man who just came up steeped in the arts, founded Yale Repertory Theater. It was actually Paul Giamatti's father who, when he was president of Yale University, fired Robert Brewster. Then he came here to to, to Harvard and founded the American Repertory Theater because he was a man who believed 
that theater should exist in an artistic, pure artistic form. And what better place to do that than adjacent to or involved with a university? And so it's there that he mentored students like Christopher Durang and Wendy Wasserstein, the, the great playwright, Meryl Streep, Sigourney Weaver, Henry, Henry Winkler, Cherry Jones. I mean, the list goes on. Tony Shalhoub, on and on and on. These are students he uh, mentored and put in plays. Apparently Sigourney Weaver kind of resented him because he kept casting Meryl Streep in pieces. <laughs> uh, but he just kept it going. But he was prickly about it because, again, because he believed that theater should be pure uh, and not have commercial aspirations, he he really was bothered by the fact that regional theaters around the country were suddenly turning toward Broadway. And how do we get our shows there well, the reason they wanted to do that, of course, is if your show goes to Broadway, then it brings the money back to the regional mm. theater. So he pressed and pressed and pressed. Uh, but a, a major influence in how we experience theater and how we think about theater today. He also wanted to experiment in um, how w traditional plays uh, may be presented. And all the time, people did not appreciate that. <laughs> that's so, right. But he's messing around with people's uh, plays, and then they were like, no, that's not how I wrote it. Leave it like that. And then they'd go back and forth and back and forth. What I learned uh, since his passing that I didn't know is that he and August Wilson had a big fight uh, mm. because he felt that August Wilson taking his plays to Broadway was a whole commerce thing. Um, and it took away, to your point, to the purity of the art. Now, going a little further, back to your point about being let go at the Yale, um, I've, I put it all together and realized, oh, wait a minute. Lloyd, um, who came, Lloyd, um, uh, the uh, artistic director, Lloyd Richards, who was the, was the artistic director at Yale Repertory Theater after Brewstein, I don't know how much after um, he came, was a big fan and a director of all of August Wilson's plays. So there may have been yeah, something yeah. else going on in addition to the fact that he just was mad about what August Wilson was doing as far as he was concerned, making money when he should have been just being a pure artist. Before we get to your take, uh, uh, Edgar, let's listen to a little bit of Robert Brewstein. Here he is in a 2021 documentary uh, about his career at the American Repertory Theater. There were peaks and valleys in my stay at the ART, mainly because the program, which began so auspiciously with The Midsummer Night's Dream, ran into trouble with critics and audiences because of the uh, experimental nature of the work. Boston as we all know, is a very conservative city. And it wasn't always willing to go along with experimentation. And I was not willing to stop the experimentation. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's interesting. You know, you think about, I think uncompromising sort of, you know, sort of seems to be a little bit of a word here. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, is like, in the arts, you sometimes need those figures who are uncompromising. You know, we were talking about the Beatles earlier and John Lennon was famously like, you know, unlike a very kind of diplomatic Paul McCartney, John Lennon would famously like not go along or just be difficult um, because he was uncompromising at times about the way he was doing things. You know, sometimes I find myself admiring people like that because because, you know, it's just it can be frustrating. You can disagree with them. But I think it's important that those figures exist. You know, Callie, you were talking about the fact that he would get into it with playwrights. There's that there's a story. I think it was in his obituary in The New York Times about him getting into it with Samuel Beckett. This, the playwright. A, this is a very famous and story. like yes. what, what I find remarkable about it. So I guess, you know, it was it was an endgame. They had yeah. done a, a, mm -hmm. a version of endgame and Samuel Beckett was like, absolutely not. Uh, 
because and, he, we should say, because he, Beckett was always, just like Edward Albee could be, very, very particular about how it was to be staged and who was going to be in it. And so, you know, Beckett says, like, no. And, you know, Bruce, Bruce Dean's like, no, this is how we're going to do it. Setting it in a subway station. And <laughs> as I understand, the the way it, it, it comes out is they continue to do the play, but both men write up something in the playbill <laughs> arguing their point of view. I, I kind of think that's remarkable in a way. Like, I, the idea that something like that could happen today sort of feels impossible, mm-hmm. but yet... I don't know. Like that's that's sort of to me how it should be. You know, they both made their point. They put it in the playbill. The show goes on, and decide for yourself. Well, I'm kind of with Beckett on that. You know, find <laughs> sure. somebody else's play to mess with <laughs> sure. if you want to do it. Um, but I will say this: uh, by being uh, kind of firm in the way and and. And at the same time, more expansive in the way he was looking at uh, how theater should be. He opened himself up or opened other people's eyes up. And, of course, we know uh, Diane Paulus is one of his protégés. Yes. Uh, so she's a student. Now the artistic director of the yeah. Repertory Theater. Right. You know, she's a student watching him and thinking, wow, I don't have to think about producing a play in just this one way. There are many ways to think about it. So that that's a contribution. Well, let's move over to the museum world now. And this is a story that's been unfolding uh, over the course of a couple of years, but it's ramping up because of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. But this week, the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston handed over a pair of bronzes to that were looted from present-day Turkey. This is an issue that is plaguing collectors. It's playing museums around this country. And the New York District Attorney's Office is on it because they are tracing these artifacts that were looted in the 1950s and 1960s by pretty nefarious figures. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew that they were violating law by pulling these objects out of the ground and then turning around and selling them to collectors who then gift them to to museums. In this case, the Museum of Fine Arts did not buy it directly. They just had this piece in their collection that turns out to have been looted. Uh, but this is this is an ongoing investigation. We just saw it happen out in Worcester, too. Uh, and museums are having to take a hard look at themselves right now. Oh, and it's long overdue. This is a long overdue process. This should have been happening. This is, of course, a much bigger conversation I know we'll engage in at some point. But because uh, returning the artifacts happened just now, we're looking at it today. But um, I think that when you have an institution like the Museum of Fine Arts returning the artifacts, it is also sets a path for other museums to say, "Uh oh, yep. I guess we yeah. better get on our stuff and and realize that this is very serious now." Because the Museum of Fine Arts, we should point out, also has a curator of provenance. It's her job, Victoria Reed's job, to trace the lineage and raise the red flags when they realize we we don't exactly know how this came to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it you know it's obviously you know this story is is larger than just this area. And it's larger than just this, you know, particular case of the 50s and 60s and things, you know, when, or whenever it was. Right. I mean, they're just items, you know, in people's collections and how they got these items. Um, you know, we we talk kind of amongst us sometimes about like stories, um, you know, in the in, in the arts and culture world that we think are going to be a series or a movie. And, and the, the DA's office in New York, going after this stuff yep. sounds like it's a, a you know a series in the making. I mean, you go back through the headlines over the last two years, and it's just like it's pretty intense. Mm-hmm. 
Well, staying local and with local art, Kelly, tell us about these murals. You, I know you're particularly excited them, about them. I love public art. I love the, the murals Same. throughout in. this city in. because it, it's our outdoor museum, essentially. But tell us what's about to be unveiled. I think it's tonight, right? At Com- yes, Roxbury, Roxbury Community, Community College. College is hosting a dedication ceremony for a mural that is a 17-panel mural that stretches 85 feet along an outdoor walkway wall between buildings three and four on the campus. You can see it from Columbus Avenue. Each panel is nine feet tall. And muralist Roberto Chow, um, who's done a million, well, maybe not a million, but a lot of murals around <laughs> the town, as well, whose work is well known, uh, was led this process. Um, more than a dozen black and brown artists from the community worked on it. and um, But he was, you know, Estimated 1,500 hours of volunteer painting. The collective vision is called An Ode to Africa in the Americas, and it honors and illustrates the past and present of Africa's presence in the Americas. I just love murals. I love them. I love them. I once hired a muralist to do something in my house. You did? Oh, really? Yes. yes. You have a mural I'm in your house? In, yeah. Is it of you? <laughs> no, no, no. It's not of me. Sun rising I behind you. It's about her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Your vision of art is narrow. I can see the two of you. No. Wait, which room? <laughs> well, it was actually an item uh, in my room that I had the mural uh, painted on, and I still have it. So. That's awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also love... I, I which mean, room I'm, is your mural in there? <laughs> Yes. Uh, which mural? <laughs> yeah. I have so many. Uh, no, no, no. You know, they, what, something I really love about this is is the community involvement, right? The idea yes. that these, you know, that the, the you know, uh, and R- Roberto Chow has done this with a number of his projects. It's just like it's not just him painting it, right? It's volunteers from the community and other artists and they're working together. And it's, you know, it's a true I mean, I think he builds himself as a community artist. I think that's kind of like how he you know, how he builds himself. And like, that's, it's kind of like, I love that. I love that it's outside, it's in public. It's also done. And it's huge. I love that. And it's done by people in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. who who participate in it. Including the artist elders, I think, as I described. People like LaMercy Fraser, who's a huge presence, a great artist in this town, a great leader in this town. And it's also happening in a place that is rich in mural tradition. Coming up for decades, murals were huge in Roxbury and Dorchester. And then there was a moment where there, there was less appreciation for them and that's all coming back and as I say it's our outdoor museum it's free and we have I think a climate in the city of Boston now which is really inspiring this and allowing it to happen and having people basically have yet another strong golden generation moment for this I know so I'm I'm excited about it well speaking of leaders let's talk for just a moment too about a a major departure Mm. here in Boston yes people know Arts Emerson perhaps it's the theatrical arm at Emerson College the professional producing theatrical arm of Emerson College, and it has long distinguished itself for the way, for, for a couple of things, how it's always brought in international theater companies, so we get exposed to the world through what's on stage at Emerson College, at Arts Emerson, uh, but they have also made it their mission, especially under the leadership of David Howes, mm-hmm. to reach out into the community, tell community stories, make sure the community has access to theater. However, with that great legacy that he had here at Boston Children's Chorus before that, uh, he's now leaving to be the president of the California College of the Arts. Yeah, it's a big loss, I think. I don't know that I even knew his official title, and I'm saying that admiringly. His official title was vice president of the Office of the Arts, executive director of Arts Emerson, because what I knew him for was his great outreach 
I mean, this was a man that was out, out there making sure that you knew about what the work was and making sure that the work was inclusive. So uh, that's his legacy for me. He, uh, his contribution is great here in Boston, and it'll, he'll be deeply missed in that role. Yeah, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like he was diff- sort of difficult to to contain as well. You know, he had no new. You know, he had done the the Boston Children's Chorus thing. He took on. I think he had two or three sort of roles with Emerson and Arts Emerson, and so it just seems like you know, b- bigger bigger things for him. Uh, and, hard to replace. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. is really hard yeah. to replace. And yeah. and like you said, Callie, in addition to his work, sat on a number of sort of organizations that were about outreach into the community. So that's the piece that you hope does not get dropped. I know. Yeah, I know David Howes, and he's just a super nice and sweet guy to boot, and very, very, very smart. And it's just kind of the latest in a string of high-level departures. Jill Medvedow at the ICA yeah. just announced that she's going to step down at the end of next year. I think there are a lot of leaders in this town and in this this region at insti- in, and institutions who made their mark and who got their institutions through COVID and now realize it's time to have uh, new leadership. So David House, congratulations, but you will definitely, (laughs) definitely be missed. Ooh, here comes the scary music. This is, I wonder what we're going to talk about now. (laughs) (laughs) This is our cue. This is not the reaction to Flavor Flav. This is is all about Halloween. That was our cue to move on to the collective cultural (laughs) happening of the week. Halloween, is it a treat of creativity or a trick of commerce. Ooh. So who who's going to be who's going to be the the Grinch on this one? Can it be both? Yes. I mean, I, I think say. it is both. It's That's both. kind of the American way, isn't it? Like <laughs> yeah. really, really conflating commerce and and money with uh, arts and culture. Uh, I think it's both. I mean, I think it really is both, and I think it genuinely is both, and I th- think that's okay. I agree. Um, it's definitely both, and it's to me gotten more more and more along the commerce lines. Because of the cultural piece of it, because it's a communal thing, because people get very excited about it. It's not my holiday. I don't. I don't get it. But you don't. I, you don't I, decorate I, I, no, or dress up or any of that. I'm not. Do you that, give out candy? Um, I did, but you know what? In my neighborhood, they're doing something really that makes sense. Uh, they put uh, people on a route and make a list and send it out to parents of folks who definitely want to do it, and so that you know when you go to this house, they have candy and I see. they're. Very good. I think that's excellent. Hmm. By the way, I just looked at this thing from uh, statistuck.com to see where Halloween fell in terms of popularity. You won't be surprised as Thanksgiving is at the top with mm. 79% of interest. But Halloween is at 68%. And in between is Memorial Day, Christmas, Veterans Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and Easter. A couple other things. So that's still pretty high up. And I think it's gaining, actually. Mm. Well, I think what part of the reason it's gaining is because if you look at it from an artistic standpoint, yeah. <laughs> as I said at the beginning of the show, this is this is about design. Okay. That's true. This is about public art. This is about being who you want to be. Yep. You get to be this person for one day, this, this uh, expression, and people don't know whether this is your true self or you're just trying to create an image or this is how you want to live for the other 364 days of the year. Uh, I've also seen, especially in my neighborhood, it's turned into set decorating. Yeah, I mean, the, dis- yeah. the displays, same in my neighborhood, Jared. The displays over the Amazing. last five to ten years have just, they've really ramped up. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable. Well, I, it, it's it, fun, though, to watch. I like to look at it. You know? I do, too. It's, yeah. it's fun to walk by yeah. everything. And what I didn't recognize, so 
coincidentally, I had I was with a group of English people this week, and I was with a, a lovely French family this week, and both and the English people and the French people they were just baffled. <laughs> by, <laughs> what is happening? Exactly. <laughs> they both said that it's starting to come to their countries, but this is just so over the top, incomprehensible to them <laughs> yeah, that people, yes. you knock on doors and you demand candy mm-hmm. and that you turn your houses into <laughs> these scary places. I mean, kind of something that's sort of interesting about that. I, and I have friends in the UK too who've said like there's you know kind of a growing interest in American style Halloween. In fact, in fact, this Halloween in the UK, a Guinness World Record was set when oh. when uh, more than ten thousand pumpkins and squashes were used to create a Tim Burton inspired mural, oh. like something from The Nightmare Before Christmas. So that's like a very, I mean, very American in so much as it's like the pumpkins and stuff for, for Halloween, but also the fact that they're breaking a world record and doing it so big. But no, the, the funny thing to me is, and I've done a number of stories about this, the, the sort of the growth of the beginnings of Halloween in America which is largely inspired by these English and Celtic traditions that Americans sort of took and either transmuted or sort of reinterpreted or in some ways took some of it. Americanized. Americanized it, (laughs) right? So, you know, this idea that, you know, it's America looking back to England and imagining what that was like and now exporting it back to England and England taking this American holiday from America, this like sort of back and forth, kind of like the Beatles with American music in a way, you know? So, I mean, that's kind of kind of neat. Meanwhile, TV hosts have just, you know, oh, they've completely, lost their lo- completely lost their minds <laughs> on this. But I think we're going to have to give it to Sherry Shepard because she did six Beyonce's. She did all the Beyonce's on the Renaissance tour. Oh, all really? the costumes. She <laughs> even did the the picture on the horse, the big, you know, horse that Beyonce's on on the album. She recreated that. So everybody's like, you know, doing that. And um, and and it's it is funny to me. Usually the winners are uh Kelly and Mark this year. This is the first time her husband's been her co-host. And um, they did 50 different changes, and they were excellent. But I think Sherry Shepard took it. Okay, so you so you <laughs> yourself don't dress up. No. You clearly are into it when yeah, other I people like to watch. Yes, okay. yes, it's public art. We yeah. just discussed this. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I work for the culture show. Okay, that's another visual. That's another audio cue here. <laughs> Good Lord. We need things to move us along. It's not just in Brighton that we're having this major story. We all day on the culture show. Uh, but here's the addition that we're calling the, the, the lightning round. We'll quickly go around and talk about the things that are catching us this week. I'll quickly start. Last night, I saw... Uh, um, the uh, the show Phyllis, which is about Phyllis Wheatley, the poet, and this takes place at uh, I think it's Phyllis in Boston. Uh, it takes place at the Old South Meeting House, <laughs> which is very significant because it's where she was a congregant. So this is the young woman who was the first African American poet in this country, and this documents this time when her volumes of poetry, which had been published in London, were coming over. How were they coming over on one of the Tea Party ships? So it got stuck in the harbor because it was very politically charged. And so this play takes us through that time in her life in the place where it happened. Mm. And it was uh, just a joy to be there last night. Well, for me, Netflix is celebrating 10 years of stand-up comedy. And I'm going to tell you, all I need some laughter. So I'm all about it. (laughs) Um, I didn't know the first uh, stand-up special was Aziz Ansari, Buried Alive, back in 2013. Wow. And since then, they've had everybody. Dave Chappelle, Ali Wong, Taylor Tomlinson, she just got named to a new nighttime show. Norm MacDonald, Chris Rock, Kevin Hart, Gabriel Iglesias, uh, Bo Burnham, Sarah Silverman, Wanda Sykes, John Mulaney, Bill Burr, you know, and many more. They have 250 uh, shows 
and then a hundred other specials. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. And, and they also really have become, set the tone. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say it yeah. really has become the platform for, yes. for sort of launching, you know, and being like, the, you know, I I have arrived. I am a serious comedian, right? Like, that's exactly. the spot. Yeah. Exactly. And it certainly helped. And I think Taylor Tomlinson has had, what, two specials? And yeah, as you mentioned, she was just announced for the Colbert show that yes. she'll be the, again, yeah. once again, the only woman that's who's right. hosting a late night show. And she but, got her jump from Netflix. Serious launching Two, 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 uh, episodes of two big specials i love their uh there's their uh, little mantra they're saying as recognition of this 10 years netflix is a joke <laughs> nice. very good very good uh so headline that caught really sort of made me stop and caught my eye this week was uh the robert e lee statue in charlottesville which was you know famously controversial for a very long time and we had the unite the right rally and all of that uh, that came down some time ago. Well, this week it was melted down at an undisclosed foundry uh, in the American South. Deliberately. And um, it, the metal was forged into ingots or bars, right? And imprinted with the words swords into plowshares, which is the name of the project by which this metal that was once that statue will be used for a new public art installation coming in the future. So really, I mean, just what a story. Well, and a, I think it's story. interesting, too, because there is this raging debate, of course, about what to do with these yeah. Confederate statues to remind people they weren't erected contemporaneously. Most of them were uh, erected in the 1920s or well beyond the Civil War. So acknowledging that they're not memorials necessarily, yep. but mm -hmm. what to do. And that particular statue I thought was fascinating because of the graffiti that happened around it. If we're talking about the same one, yes. I think, yep. mm -hmm. think we are. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just transformed into the most ast astonishing piece of contemporary art. And so it'll be interesting to see as we continue to follow these stories, what other communities, how other communities deal with the reckoning and how to deal with these the, the imagery in this is a very uh, inventive one and just to remember Robert E. Lee sa himself said do not make a statue or memorial to me that's from the man himself yeah. <laughs> well here we are we, we have uh, come to the end of our first culture show how do we feel Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't believe it's over. We should do it again next week. We yeah. should do it again next week. Callie is already texting her artist to come and do the mural of yeah. the three of well, us and James correct. Bennett when he comes back, the four of us, so that you're never without us, right, Callie? That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the Culture Show. You can tune in for more culture this Sunday at 6 with Under the Radar. Callie, what do you have coming up? I have my Latinx roundtable. We're talking about the resignations due to the new plan for English language learners in the uh, public schools, Boston Public schools. I'm also talking about mixing up the Puerto Rican and Cuban flag in a very popular Spider-Man video game and a great book um, for my book club. Edgar, what do you have coming up in the Curiosity Desk? We went out and about and we asked people around here how they celebrate fall. Is it all leaf peeping and pumpkin spice lattes or is there more to it? Got a lot of good answers. <laughs> All right. Well, again, you have been listening to The Culture Show. Our crew is Brian Bell, Max Chow-Gillette, Molly McCall, and Chelsea Mers. Huge thanks to Cy Patel, Mark Manuelian, Gary Mott, Glenn Heath, Dave Goodman, and Bill Piacitelli for their technical and engineering expertise. Nikki Fifield, we could not have been on the air without you. Thank you as well to Susan Goldberg, Pam Johnson, and Lee Hill. And thank you for listening. I'm Jared Bowen. Have a great culture-filled weekend. <laughs>